Hi, Gresham Bible Church. Happy 3rd of July. Happy 4th of July Eve. It's good to be with you. Um, tonight we're going to continue our series on the one another passages, um, kind of thinking together about what it means to be the church. And our passage is going to be from Galatians chapter 6. So if you want to start making your way there now, if you have a Bible, um, Galatians, let's see, it's after 1st and 2nd Corinthians, before Ephesians, um, towards the back of the back of your Bible. It's, it's page 1092 on, in my Bible, but it's probably different in yours. So uh, earlier this week, Stacy and I were watching um, a show on TV, and it was an interview with a famous celebrity, and a very famous celebrity. I'm not going to say who it was or give any hints, but um, this person, um, he was talking, he said several in interesting things, but he was talking about a time in his life recently that was really kind of pivotal to, for him. It was a moment of discovery, he said. And this is what he said. He said, I realized at that moment that anything that happened in my life, I can handle it. I developed a trust and a love for me that I had never had. I trust me to be okay, no matter what happens. It's an interesting quote. Um, when the passage that we're going to look at this morning, which is Galatians, or this afternoon, almost evening, is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Um, and it's basically coming from exactly the opposite perspective as that quote from that celebrity. One of the main themes of our passage is that, in fact, we cannot handle it, not by ourselves. If, like this celebrity, our trust is in me to be okay no matter what, that's an utterly foolish perspective, an utterly foolish way to live. It's rooted in self-deception, our passage says, and its consequences are devastating. Instead of this approach to life, our passage from Galatians 6 instructs us that thinking rightly of ourselves before God makes us realize our need for grace. And it leads us, starting from this humble, God-centered perspective towards a gospel-infused love where we work for others, for the good of others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's go ahead and read this passage together. It's Galatians 6, 1 through 10. If you follow along with me, that'd be great. It says this, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bury his own, bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever so, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we are here because you've called us to yourself, and we're here today to hear from your word. 
We thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace in revealing yourself to us. We pray that we would be instructed by it, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would be corrected by it, and that ultimately you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last chapter of Galatians that we're getting to here, so it's kind of hard to think about our passage without doing a little bit of background work and understanding where Paul is in the argument in Galatians. Um, Here he's moving to a point of practical application of the gospel that he's been unpacking throughout the, uh, the previous five chapters of the book. His main focus throughout the book has been to correct against the dangers of straying from the true gospel. The Galatian church was being tempted to think that they must adhere to the works of the Mosaic law in order to maintain right standing before God. But the true gospel that Paul is defending is the good news that right standing before God, that only comes through faith in Christ's finished work. So that's the, that's the argument Paul's been making, but here towards the end, he's, he's also made it clear that it still matters how we live. The fruit of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, our conduct marked by these qualities flows out of a life that's been changed by Jesus. A gospel that requires salvation for right standing before God is not a true gospel. But the gospel, a gospel that says nothing of the way that we live as a result of what Christ has done for us that's not a true gospel either. This passage exhorts us in living out the gospel in our love for one another. The first thing it says, starting in verse 1, is how to live this out in response to a wayward brother or sister. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." Freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom to sin. And that's something that Paul is anticipating might be a a misunderstanding of what he's been saying. One aspect of living together as the community of God's people is sometimes correcting one another when we sin. The reality of the Christian life is that until Christ's return, until our sanctification is completed, we will still do things that are different than what God calls us to do. That's just the reality that we live in, this side of eternity. And as we pursue maturity together, sometimes we need the help from one another in our struggle against sin. That's what Paul is speaking to here. Um, it may seem like the loving thing to do in the uh, community of, of Christian followers of Jesus is to overlook sin, to kind of turn a blind eye when somebody is going astray in our midst. But that's not true for the body of Christ. That's not what Paul is envisioning here. We correct one another when necessary, and we do so out of love. The key here in the correction that he's talking about is that it's done for the sake of restoration. And in a spirit of gentleness, it says, the point is not to correct just for the sake of punishment or just for the sake of rebuke. The point is to restore, to help a fellow Christian get back on track, it's like James helping his brother John on the, side, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to join together to fix their nets after a long day of fishing. It's the idea of helping someone mend something that's out of whack, that's not quite right, that's broken. 
And this restoring that we do with one another, it must be done in a spirit of gentleness, it says. It's, it's calling back to those fruits of the Spirit and using one of, those, one of those elements of the fruit of the Spirit to characterize the way we restore one another. Sometimes, on the one hand, it might seem like in order to bear the fruit, the Spirit's fruit of gentleness and kindness, we should just, again, forget about sin and overlook it, turn a blind eye. Also, on the other hand, sometimes we can neglect gentleness in our eagerness to correct, and we can forget that goal of restoration. Some of us are more prone to overlook sin and err in that direction, while for others, harsh correction if we're honest, it comes more naturally. Either direction, errors on either side miss the point of what Paul is saying here. Restoring a sinning brother can and must be done in a way that's rooted in the gospel, but unfortunately, and this is the danger it seems like Paul is mainly focusing on here, sometimes, unfortunately, correction can also be done in a way that goes contrary to the gospel. In the second part of the verse, the part where it talks about watching yourself carefully, it gives an effective correction or prevention against this kind of harsh and ungentle correction. It says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here, I think what he has in mind is the idea that if we have more satisfaction, if we take more pleasure in discerning and accusing and rebuking others of their sin, than we do in seeing that person restored and seeing God glorified in the process, then I think we're the ones who are giving into temptation. I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. We're the ones who are guilty of the sin of uh, self-righteousness and pride and thinking that we're, we're better and we're, we're in a position to kind of look down on people and correct them constantly. We're not walking in step with the Spirit who produces the fruit of gentleness. Without gentleness, the goal of pointing out a brother or sister's sin, it's not restoration, at best, I think it's simply a desire for punishment, and at worst, and probably more likely the case, it's an attempt to elevate my own sense of self-righteousness. So I think this verse, especially verse 1, is calling us to examine ourselves. And Later on in the passage, it will come back to this idea of examining yourself and kind of doing that soul-searching gospel work. Um, but here it moves on to a different point in verse 2 and gives this simple but powerful exhortation that's really at the heart of our passage. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's a summary statement kind of, and it's meant to underscore the community aspect of what it means to be a Christian and to be a church, the body of Christ. The Christian life is mutual. It's not individual. We're in this together as the family of God's people. Together as the church, we are to restore gently when someone falls into sin, and we're to build one another up. We're to encourage each other to grow in displaying the fruit of the Spirit. One thing I love about GBC is how we love to rally around people who are moving or relocating, if you want to say it that way. I remember when we moved to our first house in Gresham over on Evelyn near Dexter, um, we this was in, I think, 2013, and GBC showed up. An army of GBCers showed up to help. We didn't even need to rent a van because there were trucks and trailers, more than we even needed. Um, and it only took about an hour or two to load everything up, drive over to the new place on Evelyn, and unload. It was amazing. It's, it's miraculous. Um, 
it's kind of like my mom always says, many hands make light work. There's truth to that, and it's, it's wonderful truth. That, in some ways, is a really tangible illustration of what it means to bear one another's burdens, literally. The more boxes or furniture you all carried for us, the fewer that we had to carry. And Stacy reminded me the other day, was pregnant with Silas when this happened. So uh, all we had to do was provide donuts for the, the moving crew. Um, there were other times that we, there's been other times that we've moved before coming to GBC and we were kind of on our own a little bit more and it's, it's really a long, arduous project. It takes a long time. It's a lot harder. In the Christian life, sharing in each other's struggles is how God designed it to work. We're not made to carry all our burdens by ourselves, and we just can't, despite what that famous celebrity thinks. Again, sometimes bearing one another's burdens means we come alongside them as they struggle against sin. Battling sin can be exhausting. It can really be a great burden. We probably all have experienced that at times. We can, we're called to help carry the load. This doesn't mean that we join in the sin with the person. Um, the 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 Bible's very clear about that, but it does mean we take on a sacrificial and load-bearing role and posture with our brother. It means we pray for them, we share truth from God's word with them, and we text or call them when they need it um, and check in to see how they're doing. Bearing one another's burdens also means we grieve with those who grieve. And we've, we've had the opportunity to do that in our, in our own church recently. It's not grieving just from a distance, it's not just for a moment, but it's a kind of godly empathy that calls us to take their burden on ourselves in some real way and share with them in their pain. Bearing one another's burdens means we help those in need. We help them move and we help with all sorts of other needs. It means uh, we look at the community around us, especially our church community, and we, we show up. Bearing another's, one another's burdens, it really makes life more bearable for the one who has the burden. Uh, it's just like helping make the job of moving easier, um, bearing another's burdens in, more, uh, in all the, the ways that we've been talking about. It makes the, the job easier. But when you do pitch in to help, this is the other side of it, it's, it's hard work. It takes sacrifice. When you help somebody move, carrying boxes, carrying furniture, you get sweaty. That's just the reality of it. And that's part of, I think, what we must grasp from this passage. Bearing one another's burdens is a sacrificial act of love. When it says here in this verse that it fulfills, bearing another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ, it means it fulfills the law of Christ's love. Just earlier in Galatians, Paul had said the whole law is fulfilled in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And in John 13, 34, it's kind of a famous passage, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The law of Christ that Paul is talking about here is the commandment to love with Christ's love. Bearing one another's burdens fulfills this law. And this, again, is an entirely different kind of law than the works of the law that Galatians has been dealing with throughout the rest of the book. Um, it's not trying to have good standing before God. That's the kind of law that is not true gospel or in line with the gospel. The law of Christ, on the other hand, is the work of love that flows out of what he has done for us. 
The true gospel, the only gospel, is the good news that Jesus died to make us right before God and to give us new life. The law of Christ is the fruit of a life that's reborn, a life made new through Jesus' death and resurrection, a life that bears the fruit of the Spirit in us. Jesus bore the ultimate burden, taking our sin upon himself. There has never been and there never will be a better, more perfect example of bearing one another's burdens than we have in the cross. When we bear another's burdens, it's an expression of that perfect burden-bearing love that Jesus displayed. When we come alongside a brother and gently walk with him in his struggle against sin, when we grieve with a sister who's grieving, when we show up and help a member of the church when they're in need, when we rally around a foster family as they take a new foster child in, all of these things, these are ways that we fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. This is the way we live out the gospel, and it's not easy. Again, I think that's an important point that we have to acknowledge. There can be challenges and obstacles of all different sorts to this kind of burden-bearing love for one another. This, the next few verses kind of address some of these obstacles and help us work through some of the things that may come in the way of this kind of love for each other. Verses 3 to 5 say, uh, For if anyone, find my place here, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But le- let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor." for each will have to bury his, bear his own load. An overly inflated view of ourselves, I think this is the, one of the main obstacles to a sacrificial kind of love that Paul has in mind here. As, we, uh, as we're honest with ourselves and as we do this kind of introspective work that Paul is calling us to, I think we have to be honest that we all can at times have too high of a view of ourselves. Our own natural inclinations Tell us we are something, as it says in the verse. And and the world around us definitely tells us the same thing. I am my own master. And the self-expression of who I am is the highest good that I could possibly pursue. But the Bible, on the other hand, starts with God as the creator. And we are his creation. One of the classic catechisms of the Christian faith, it begins with this question. It says, The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that it gives, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This, the the gospel that Paul has been defending and explaining and unpacking is the news that without Jesus, we are nothing. Christ is everything. We have been crucified with Christ, it says. We no longer live, but Christ. Christ is now our life. Our life is lived by faith in Jesus, not by the flesh we inhabit. Our identity is defined by God's Son who gave himself up for us. So instead of deceiving ourselves and thinking we are something, we test our work. Like keeping watch over ourselves lest we too be tempted, we are to examine our lives in light of who God is and in light of what he's revealed to us in his word. When we do this, We see things more truly as they really are. With God's holy standards in view and with his character in view, we have no room for boasting, either in ourselves or in comparison with others. 
the boasting of a prideful, self-righteous Christian is a foolish and futile boast. The good news of the gospel completely upends this kind of a boast. Any boast, really, except for the boast in Christ and his work. Just a little after our passage, right near the end of Galatians, Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When I test my own work, like Paul is calling us to do here, not in comparison with others, but in light of God's perfect standards, I will always find myself lacking. If I'm taking an assessment of myself and my own work, if I'm being honest, I end up realizing that I fall short of God's glorious holiness. I have no room to boast. I cannot bear the burden of my own sin. Only Christ can do that. But he has done that. We're nothing without Christ, but in him we're everything. Our boast is in Christ alone and in the cross upon which he was crucified. Because he bore the burden of sin we could never bear, we're forever freed from its weight. We can take his easy and light yoke upon ourselves. We can find rest for our souls. And we can bear one another's burdens as he has borne ours. This is the beautiful truth that Paul is getting us to reflect on here in Galatians 6. Verse 6, as we move on in the passage, it gives one specific, tangible way that we can bear one another's burdens. It says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. GBC is a generous church. The service leader, as Jordan did today, reminds us every week that giving is an important part of our worship, an important part of the worship service. And when we give, we give to support the teaching and preaching of God's word, among other things. The Bible is central to who we are as a church. And one of the most important ways that we can bear one another's burdens is to care for the one whose main responsibility it is to teach us the word. This responsibility to teach the word, it's a weighty responsibility. It's, it's not easy. And I'm speaking from just a little bit of experience this past week, but only a little bit. I only do this every once in a while, but every time I do, I think, how in the world do these guys do this every week? It's, uh, it's, it's a weighty task. I've loved sitting under Josh's preaching. Um, it's one of my favorite things about our church over these past few years. Um, and hopefully, we've done a good job of obeying this passage and caring well for Josh and his family. And I think we've, we've tried to do that as he heads off and preaches the word faithfully and pastors at Pathway Church in California. And before Josh was here, we benefited greatly from Virgil's skillful and powerful preaching of the word too. And I think we cared generously for him too when he was here and also when he left to go plant Redemption Church. And now our next lead pastor will also be given us the main task of leading us to follow God in his word, teaching his word to us. And we'll continue to strive for generosity and sharing in all good things with this one who will lead us and teach us. For now, in this next season, as we prayerfully seek the Lord in our search for a new lead pastor, Mike, Mike will be carrying much of the load. He'll be the one primarily laboring to teach us God's word. As a church family, let's be sure that we're caring well for Mike and Carrie and their family. Let's all pitch in and do what we can to manifest the love of Christ, to fulfill the law of Christ, and to bear the burdens 
of Mike being our pastor in this time. So far in this passage, we've been exhorted to restore a brother gently. We've been encouraged to bear one another's burdens, to test ourselves in our work, and especially to care uh, in in a unique way for those who teach God's word to us. These are all good things, important aspects of doing life together. And as we've said, they're all things that don't necessarily just come naturally. They're not always easy. That's why, again, that one of the underlying tones that we, we need to keep hearing in this is that this is an act of sacrificial love that Paul is calling us to. It's an act of persevering love. To live the way we're called to live as Christians, it takes self-giving effort. It takes persistence and endurance. The passage, as we move on now to, the, to kind of the second half, it shifts to encouraging us to carry on, to persevere, in doing good, for there will be a harvest of good fruit eventually. Verses 7 to 8 say this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from, from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The biblical authors, for those of you who've read your Bible at all, they love agricultural metaphors. And this idea of reaping what you sow is a common motif in Scripture. To say whatever one sows, that he will also reap, as it says here, this is a statement of the Lord's justice. The world is ordered justly under the sovereign reign of our Creator God. In the end, ultimately, things will play out as He has arranged them. That's something that we can count on. It's inevitable. Just as planting habanero seeds doesn't produce an orchard of apple trees, uh, so also sowing seeds of sin does not produce righteousness and God's blessing. It's just how God made the world. But as we know, sin can deceive us. It can make us believe that we might be the exception to this just ordering of creation. Our foolish pride can lead us to think maybe giving into temptation and indulging in this sin will ultimately make me happy. Or maybe lying will end up bringing about a good result. I know God's word says I'm to restore my brother in gentleness, but maybe in this case, I can just skip past that pesky gentleness part of things. Ignore the fruit of the Spirit and jump straight into this kind of a harsh rebuke. Maybe I'm the exception to the principles of God's justice of reaping and sowing. This kind of thinking is, as we know, is just plain wrong. We deceive ourselves, it says, when we think this way. We act like we know better than God and we try, as if it were possible, to mock the God of the universe and make a fool of him and his ways. But God is not mocked. It may appear he is. It may seem like people are reaping the opposite of what they're sowing. Doing the right thing is often difficult, more difficult than it may in the short term, bring much more pain, and doing the wrong thing is often easier, more expedient, the path of less resistance. From our vantage point, it can sometimes look like God's justice is not prevailing and the reaping doesn't match the sowing. But it will in the end. It's an absolutely mistaken impossibility to think that God, the sovereign king of all, can be mocked, that his justice will not have the last word. It's a great comfort to us. Specifically here, sowing to the flesh is in contrast to sowing in the Spirit or to the Spirit. 
And harvesting corruption from the flesh is said in contrast with reaping from the Spirit eternal life. The contrast between flesh and spirit is something that Paul has been building on throughout the book of Galatians. Basically, the flesh, on the one hand, is the earthly, selfish nature of our own humanness. That's kind of an overly simplified uh, idea of what the flesh is. It's a self-centered experience and self-reliant effort to achieve our own ends by our own efforts and to live without regard for the work of Christ for us and for, uh, for others and in us. Paul has spent his time throughout Galatians reminding the the Galatian readers that they have been justified, cleansed of their sins, and made right before God, not by their own fleshly efforts, but only by the gracious work of God through Jesus. And now they're being made new by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, not by fleshly efforts. He had asked them rhetorically in verse 3 of chapter 3, you began in the Spirit, are you now being perfected? by the flesh. The obvious answer to this rhetorical question is no, that just plain doesn't make any sense. Then in chapter 5, he contrasted the sinful works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. The desires of the flesh are things like sexual immorality, idolatry, divisions, and drunkenness. And we're called to live out the gospel by opposing these kinds of desires of the flesh and live out the desires of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. It says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been cru- have crucified the flesh with its desires. Instead, we live by the Spirit and we keep in step with the Spirit. Those are things that Paul unpacks in chapter 5. So now our passage kind of picks up on this contrast of flesh and Spirit. And it says that sowing to the flesh instead of the, f- the Spirit will bring about a harvest of corruption. Self-centered, self-righteous works of the, of the flesh will only produce corrupted destruction. The image here of corruption, it's a pretty graphic idea. The idea of corruption of the flesh is is that of decay and decomposition of the flesh. It's been decayed to the point of destruction. I can't help, when I think of this, I can't help but think of the roadkill raccoon that I've been driving by on my way home from work for the past several weeks. It's it's right there. It's in the shoulder on I-84. and I get, so I go, when I'm going by in the left lane, um, I see it up close and personal. And it's over the past few weeks, I've had a, a front row view of its decomposition of every stage. And I'm going to resist sharing all the details, but um, it's gross. It's just, it's, it's actually kind of been entertaining because it's so disgusting. But that's how, that's the idea that Paul has in mind. It's, it's rotting away. It's flesh that's decaying. This will be the end result of fleshly efforts to bear fleshly fruits to serve our own purposes. Corruption, decay, and death. It's kind of a, a dark thing to think about, especially when I'm imagining that raccoon. But on the other hand, and this is the glorious, joyful part of the passage, The harvest that will be produced from a life of walking by the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that harvest will be eternal life. This is life forever and life with Jesus. It's not just the duration of life that's in view, it's the quality of life that's in view also. 
As Christians, we walk in this hope of eternal life. In the context of contrasting the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, it had said that those who walk in the flesh and bear the fruits of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. But as Christians, we have a different hope. Through the Spirit, by faith, we wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. The Spirit will produce righteousness, and the harvest of that fruit will be eternal life, which is resurrection life. 1 Corinthians 15, famous passage. It's the Bible's most thorough treatment of the theme of resurrection. It unpacks a lot of these same ideas there, and it says that we have an imperishable, incorruptible future to look forward to after resurrection. It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable, or that which is corrupted, it's the same word that's used for corruption here in our passage, that decay, decomposition word. That perishable, the perishable does not inherit the imperishable. The dead will be raised imperishable. The perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Ultimately, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, death will be swallowed up. The victory that Jesus has won over death in his resurrection will give way to a harvest of eternal life for us as well. This is a joyful hope that the passage is speaking to. Um, It's what our call to worship says, um, Psalm 16, it says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Again, that same corruption word. Because Jesus rose from the dead, so we too are not abandoned to death and corruption. We live in the hope of eternal life with him. We respond to what Jesus has graciously done for us by sowing seeds of spiritual fruit, and we do so knowing fully and confidently that it will eventually, inevitably, bring about a harvest of incorruptible eternal resurrection life. The final two verses of this passage exhort us to persevere in doing good to all, carried along by this hope of a harvest of eternal life. Verses 9 and 10 say this, they say, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The good that we must not grow weary of doing here, it won't necessarily produce an immediate harvest. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes we may not see the harvest even in this life. This is why this exhortation is necessary. If it was easy to do good, and if we saw immediate fruits, then this wouldn't even be necessary, this encouragement this exhortation, this reminder. We need to hear the instruction not to grow weary because life can be difficult. Sowing the seeds of the Spirit can be burdensome. Often it's hard to remember that we'll reap a good harvest in due time, but we will. Again, it's calling us to remember that, to be confident in that. Not giving up in doing good will produce a fruitful harvest. Remember, God will not be mocked. His ways will always prevail in the end. We're called to continue to persevere in doing good. As we have opportunity, it says, the time to sow is now before the final time of reaping comes. While we await the coming of Christ in his eternal kingdom, we persevere. 
It says, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's certainly a good thing, and this is something that we do and value at GBC. It's a good thing to demonstrate Christ's love to the world around us. But here we're called to prioritize and and have a special focus on caring for those in our midst, in our own church family. We're to prioritize what it calls the household of faith. This is not saying that we ignore needs outside of our church body. don't, Don't hear Paul saying that. Don't hear me saying that. This is just highlighting the special and supernatural reality of the local church. It calls us to live out the gospel, to love one another, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, especially in the context of our church family. Not growing weary in doing good can mean all kinds of different things. But specifically, from what we've covered today in this passage, it means, again, gently restoring our brother when he falls into sin. It means doing the hard and soul-searching work of watching myself to guard against temptation. It means bearing one another's burdens, not just every once in a while, but as a way of life, as a long-term labor of sacrificial love. It means humbly examining my own work in light of Scripture, not thinking too highly of myself, and living in community with one another with a realistic perspective, a gospel-shaped perspective of my own need for Jesus. Not growing, growing weary in doing good to those in the household of faith means sharing generously with those whose main responsibility, who have the weighty responsibility to bring us the word and teach us in the word every week. And it means carrying on, persevering, and sowing spiritual seeds that bear spiritual fruit with the hope that one day we will reap what we sow. GBC family, brothers and sisters, Let us not grow weary in doing good to one another, fulfilling the law of Christ's love. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, as it says in Hebrews 12. Let us also carry on in bearing one another's burdens, considering him who endured the burden of our sin so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The harvest of eternal life is coming. Let's pray. Oh God, your gospel is truly wonderful news. Thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for that burden that you bore that we could never bear. You are gracious. You are kind to us. Thank you that you sustain us. Thank you for the hope of life eternal with you. We pray that you would help us to carry on, help us to persevere, help us not to grow weary in doing what is good with that hope of of an eternal harvest always in view. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.